Welcome back to Mark's Madness, now part of Sean Kaluta. Hello. <laughs> Rez is back again. Um, we are back to reading Gramsci, uh, and we are going to be continuing on in Chapter 3, Factory Councils and Socialist Democracy. Uh, it's 94, slide 94 uh, in the Gramsci Reader. Um, that uh, Prez has put together for us. Um, in the meantime, normally we start with current events here. Most of the current events are they're big deals, but they're continuations of things. You know, we've talked about uh, Haiti um, basically being invaded by the U.S. via the the um, puppetry of of the Dominican government uh, across the island there. Um, you know, there's the ongoing wars, obviously, in, in Ukraine, uh, in, in Artsakh is uh, uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia fighting over the territory. It's part of Armenia. It's disputed, kind of like the territory between uh, India and Pakistan, but it's, it's largely uh, governed by, it was largely controlled by Armenia, um, but it was internationally recognized by very pro-Western people as part of Azerbaijan. Um, and there is, you know, a genocidal blockade and war going on there. Um, that's, that's incredibly brutal. You know, that stuff continues on. Um, but I don't think there's anything that just like popped up in the last week to bring up that I have. Uh, do you have anything press? Well, uh, I mean, Armenia did get its territory invaded. Uh yeah. <laughs> That that's part of the the whole blockade thing, but um, no, not not really. We're sticking with the the history has ended, I guess. Theory. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's it's one of those like you know weeks where decades happen and and um, you know decades where where nothing happens. There's definitely not a a decade where nothing's happening. Like you just said, there's three different major world event war, but there is, there's a week where nothing new has happened. There's, there's been no new decade happening. So, um, as far as changing world events, obviously these are very important world events that are ongoing and they don't just stop because we take our eyes off it. Um, and they don't become less important because we take our eyes off it. There's just nothing breaking to bring up and, and add new analysis to. Um, so with that, I think we can actually get pretty quickly into the reading here. Um, Prez, if you want to start, because we usually do the, the person who wasn't here last time. Yeah, so I'll go. And here we come back to our starting point. We said that the institutions of the socialist proletarian movement in the period prior to this present one did not develop un- autonomously, but in response to the general configuration of human society under the sway of the sovereign laws of capitalism. The war turned the strategic conditions of the class struggle upside down. The capitalists have lost their preeminence. Their freedom is limited. Their power is reduced to a minimum. Capitalist concentration has reached its maximum possible level with the achievement of a global monopoly of production and exchange. The corresponding concentration of the working masses has given the revolutionary proletarian class an unprecedented power. The the traditional institutions of the movement have become incapable of of containing such a flowering of revolutionary activity. 
Their very structure is inadequate to the task of disciplining the forces which have become part of the conscious historical process. These institutions are not dead. Born in response to, the, to free competition, they must continue to exist until the last remnant of competition has been wiped out until classes and parties have been completely suppressed and national proletarian dictatorships have been, have been fused in the communist international. But besides these institutions, new state-oriented institutions must arise and develop. The very institutions which will replace the private and public institutions of the parliamentary democratic state. The very institutions which will replace the person of the capitalist in his administrative functions and his industrial power and so achieve the autonomy of the producer in the factory. Institutions capable of taking over the management of all the functions inherent in the complex system of the relations of production and exchange that link the various workshops of a factory together to form the base to form a basic economic unit link together the various activities of the agricultural industry and through horizontal and vertical planning have to construct the harmonious edifice of the national and international <clears throat> sorry of the national and, and international economy liberated from the obstructive and parasitical tyranny of the private property owners. Never has the drive and revolutionary enthusiasm of the Western European proletariat been more vigorous. It seems to us, however, that a lucid and a precise awareness of the end is not accompanied by a comparably lucid and precise awareness of the means that are needed at the present moment to achieve that end. The conviction has already taken root in the masses that the proletarian state is embodied in a system of workers, peasants, and soldiers' councils. But the tactical conception, which will objectify objectively, but the, ta but the tactical conception which will objectively ensure that the state comes into being is not yet evident. So a network of proletarian institutions must be set up without delay, a network rooted in the consciousness of the broad masses, one that can depend on their discipline and permanent support, a network in which the class of workers and peasants in their totality can adopt a form that is rich in dynamism and in future growth possibilities. It is certain that if a mass movement with a revolutionary character were to develop today in the present conditions of proletarian organization, all it would achieve would be a purely formal correction of the democratic state. The outcome would simply be increased powers for the chamber of deputies via a constituent assembly and the arrival in the power of a bungling anti-communist socialists. The forces of the democratic state and of the I like, yeah, I like that the the arrival yeah. and power of bungling anti-communist socialists. This is something that, um, again, I my my head is getting stuck on war of maneuver versus war of position because that's exactly what this is going into. 
right? And and it's very relevant today. And that line just underscores how relevant it is, um, especially in a world where socialism is getting a little more trendy. And there is, I don't know how many anti-communist socialists out there that will just, they live for their takes. I mean, it reminds me essentially of the big issue that we have right now of the DSA and we've had with the DSA that is we, you know, it's very easy for us to, to make fun of the DSA and, and say that these people aren't genuine, but even the people who are in the DSA to be genuine um, and they want to do good work and they're doing, trying to do stuff like tenant organizing and stuff. And they just happen to be in the DSA because that's all there is. Um, they get funneled through the DSA into essentially just organizing for Democrats. <laughs> yeah, very much. I mean, we, yeah, and you're, you're very right. And I, I, I think we've touched on that before. There are a lot of people in the DSA, a lot of branches of the DSA that are doing good work because that is the organization people find and they're still doing it. But you have to ask, you know, what is the broader organization? What is the umbrella organization? Things like that. Right. Um, and the DSA just lives to be pro Democrat, to be anti communist, you know. Um, you've all there's also a lot of smaller third parties that that do kind of the same thing, right? Like the Working Families Party or whatever, um, but do it like more purely through electoral politics. Oh, god. The fucking the working families party was just like a rubber stamp. Anytime I would go when I was voting and I lived in New York, I would go to the ballot and I would just see like Democrat and then working families party on the same fucking line. Um, but like, you know, trade unionism or DSA or whatever reform green party, if you're not in the U S like, are these organizations that are actively trying to create fundamental change to the system, whether or not it be through revolution or, you know, drastic reform, however we want to go into that argument, whatever, or are they essentially like direct, like parliamentary reformist? We just elect someone in and then we change the rules that way. Um, I do, I do like the distinction too, if um, of Green Party, if you're not in the USA, because the, the Green Party in the USA is also reformist and can fit into this category, but it's more of the the far left one that will actually like platform and and like you know bring up vice presidential candidates and gubernatorial candidates and and things like that, like Ajamu Baraka and yeah. Eugene Perrier, and you know, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a little more. in Europe suck. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 probably the only party that exists in Europe and the United States that's farther left in the United States. That's that's a rarity yeah, right there. It's very strange. The Greens are in charge in Germany right now, and they're not they're not good. Um, anyway, the forces of the democratic state and of the capitalist state are still immense. We must not blind ourselves to the fact that capitalism survives mainly through the activity of its sycophants and lackeys. And this scurvy race is still, is certainly far from extinct. I, I like the, the kind of pirate language there. <laughs> to sum up, the creation of the proletarian state is not a Thaumaturgical? Thaumaturg... 
Yeah, thaumaturgical. I don't know what that means. I guess I'll look it up. <laughs> it's just a really fancy word for magic. That's ridiculous. <laughs> He's just saying it's not magic. Why would you pick that word? Just say it's not magic. And this is like a translation, too. So I'm imagining Graham, she used some like also ridiculously fancy word for magic in Italian. I am. I'm sure, but that that's not good, Gramsci. You should know, you know, you speak to the world <laughs> working class. And, you know, I don't like to think like, oh, working class can't handle big, long word stuff. But like sometimes an unnecessarily hard word that most people don't know is just going to cause slip ups. And it's, you know, it's you're talking like Billy, the blue power ranger now. Um, <laughs> not even like SAT word. It's like a yeah. word or some shit. Exactly. Um, and, and whoever translated this, like you, you could just say magic. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> to sum up the creation of the proletarian state is not a magical act. It is itself a process of development. It presupposes a preparatory period involving organizing and propaganda Greater emphasis and powers must be given to the proletarian factory institutions that already exist, comparable to ones that need that must be set up in villages. They must be composed of communists conscious of the revolutionary mission these institutions must accomplish. Otherwise, all our enthusiasm, all the faith of the working, working masses will not succeed in preventing the revolution from degenerating pathetically into new parliament into a new parliament of schemers talkers and irresponsibles nor in avoiding the necessity to make further and more dreadful sacrifices to bring it about a proletarian state see now degenerating pathetically like that's good use of language that's not fucking thaumaturgical <laughs> oh but that's the end of the section sorry Um, so you know uh, just to sum up obviously that this is is Gramsci had a little more faith in in doing the more Soviet style thing but there's a lot of wrestling with like you can't just come to power and it's magically better here like you need to make sure you're principled and you have people on board and we want a more democratic society, but you can't just flip it to more democratic, right? I, I mean, otherwise we would be all anarchist and anarchism is far more, you know, process-based and complex of this, but the, the, the broad idea is that it can very quickly go to no state, right? And that should be the, the hyper-focused goal. And, and, you know, there's no transitionary state. You're, you're getting rid of the state and trusting it and you can't flip to that, right? There's the shortcomings of, of anarchism for all that's, all of its strengths. You need something transitionary. And we don't know what it's like, you know, with all this previous reality injected into it of capitalism and stuff um, beyond even a communist state past that. So we know that that process could take longer or could not end as, as quickly or thoroughly as we expect. And so you can't say past it is the only goal. Um, you can't do that with, with being more democratic. You know, the uh, goal of socialism is to be more democratic and actually serve the people in spite of it being the buzzword of, of liberals. Um, and we want it to actually be democratic, but you can't just snap your fingers and make it actually more democratic because, we've talked about this all the time. Um, you know, people's ideas have been changed, right? 
democracy is not a matter of voting or not voting. And we know that it's a, it's a matter of, you know, the will of the people being served. And if the will of the people has been injected into them for a small group's interest, that's got to be worked back out so people can, you know, drive their own will again. Yeah. We're going to see with, with uh, Gramsci's all the stuff on culture and creating a new, uh, intellectual or new education and a new any everything um democracy is not just you know the soviet model of democracy in the workplace and then democracy in the government it is democratizing you know from the ground up from you know from the school to the newspaper to everything um I, I think that's a strength here. So like people talk about, you know, obviously there's way more to Marxism than Marx and we're a, a big example of that. You know, we, we've pushed that, um, uh, that you've got to understand, you know, the world we live in now and that this is a decolonial struggle and, and, you know, um, the, the fourth world revolutionaries that, that live in what is currently United States, our biggest audience now, but obviously, you know, you're in Europe now, right now, Prez, and, and we have audience all over. Um, we've talked about, all of those things, but one real strength of Marx and the reason people go right back to it and, and it's his big book is, is capital, right? It's one central idea that you could probably summarize in five minutes, but the whole book is, is, is meeting it out making sure you understand it, proofing it, you know, showing the evidence it came from and tying it all back. And I think that's a strength I'm kind of getting from, from Gramsci and maybe why I'm saying I'm going back to war of maneuver versus war of position. I'm not really going back to it. It's all encompassed in the work. It's, it's, it's coming back over and over expressed different ways. And it just reminds me of capital. And I, I think that's good because that shows that there's a lot of proof and a lot of truth to, to what you're saying. And it's a very foundational, um, philosophical idea uh that's that's proving out very materially but it also helps you fully understand and fully flesh out that idea and and fully build politics on it and and so i think there's a lot of strength in that and and that's last section really felt that and you talking about you know going back into culture and democracy from the ground up kind of fits that idea too i got distracted because i just noticed your shirt (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's just it's a bunch of recorders and this is hot crust buns <laughs> should i read the next section uh yeah you go ahead and keep reading okay section three to the workshop delegates of the fiat centro and brevetti plants the new form which the internal commission has assumed in your plans with the election of the workshop delegates together with discussions that led that led up to and accompanied this transformation have not passed unnoticed amongst the workers and bosses of Turin. On the one hand, the workers in the other plants in the city and province are preparing to follow your lead. On the other, the, the owners and their direct agents, the managers of the great industrial enterprises are watching the movement with mounting interest. They're asking themselves and asking you, what can be the ultimate goal of all of this? What can the program that the Turin working class is pursuing? We are well aware of the fact that our newspaper has played a substantial part in bringing this movement into existence. 
In its pages, not only has the question been examined from a theoretical and general point of view, but we also but we have also brought together and analyzed the results of experiences in other countries to furnish material for the study of practical applications. We know, however, that our work has been of value to the extent that it has satisfied a need and has helped to give concrete expression to an aspiration that was latent in the consciousness of the working masses. So again, this is the idea that the, the Vanguard Party isn't creating things that weren't there already. They're helping direct energy that, that exists already. This is why we were so rapidly understood. This is why the transition from discussion to realization was affected so rapidly. We believe that this need and this aspiration, whence the movement to renew working class organization initiated by you draws its origins, are inscribed in reality, that they are a direct consequence of the point reached in the process of its development by the social and economic system based on private appropriation of the means of production and exchange. Today, the worker on the shop floor and the peasant in the fields, the English miner and the Russian mozhik, I don't know what that is, all the workers of the whole world are sensing more or less certainly and experiencing more or less directly that truth which studious men had foreseen and about which they are growing more and more certain when they observe the events of this phase in history of humanity. We have reached the point at which the working class, if it does not wish to fail in the task of reconstruction, which is inherent in its actions and its will, must begin to organize itself positively and appropriately for the ends to be accomplished. And and I waited to the end of the paragraph because it wasn't uh, important enough to to change the meaning to correct it. But when you were talking that the the, the uh, Russian mujek, it's uh, like kind of as opposed to a kulak, it's it's the actual serfs and and mm. and peasant farmers. Oh, okay. <clears throat> now, if it is true that the new society will be based on work and on coordination of the pr- of the producers' energies. Then tomorrow the workplaces where the producers live and function together will be the centers of the social organism and will have to take the place of the directive bodies of the present-day society. In the early stages of the workers' struggle, organization along craft lines was most suitable for the purposes of defense, for the requirements of the struggle for immediate improvements in economic conditions and the work regime. So to today, when reconstructive aims are beginning to emerge and take on increasing coherence in the minds of the workers, it is essential that a factory organization should arise parallel to and support of the craft one as a true school for developing the reconstructive capacities of the workers. So this is, this is meeting like, uh, you're not just a, a craft union of just say plumbers or just say automotive uh, people. You're everyone who's working for Ford or everyone who's working in a certain industry, 
rather than doing a specific task. The working masses must take adequate measures to acquire complete self-government, and the first step among this, along this road consists in disciplining themselves inside the workshop in the strictest in the strictest possible yet autonomous, spontaneous, and unconstrained manner. Nor can it be denied that the discipline which will be established along with the new system will lead to an improvement in production. But this is nothing but the confirmation of one of of the theses of socialism. The more the productive human forces acquire consciousness, liberate themselves, and freely organize themselves by emancipating themselves from slavery to which capitalism would have liked to condemn them forever, the better does their mode of utilization become. A man will always work better than a slave. So too, so too those who object by that so too who so too those who so object so too those who object that by this method we are collaborating with our opponents. <laughs> it is a little confusing, but I <laughs> I was like, oh I got this one. With the owners of the factories, we reply that, on the contrary, this is the only means of letting them know in concrete terms that the end of their domination is at hand, since the working class is now aware of the possibility of doing things in itself and doing them well. Indeed, from one day to the next, it is acquiring an ever clearer certainty that it alone can save the entire world from ruin and desolation. Hence, every action that you undertake, every battle that is waged under your leadership will be illuminated by the light of that ultimate goal, which is in all your minds and intentions. And so even the acts of apparently little importance in which the mandate conferred upon you is concretized will acquire an enormous value. Since you were elected by a workforce in which there are many still unorganized elements, your first concern naturally will be to bring these into the ranks of the workers' organizations a task which moreover will be facilitated by the fact that these people will still see you in their ready defenders, will still see in you their ready defenders, their guides, their initiators into the life of the factory. You will show them through through example that a worker's strength lies wholly in union and solidarity with his comrades. I I think that's a, a really good... Um paragraph to to look over for a second because it's it's saying something that we've talked about versus there's a lot of accelerationists out there you know the there's this idea here that that you say stuff and it it seems so simple and obvious and and very agreeable because these people do you know understand their struggle and you're putting it to words with the with an obviously true solution to words and that's what's getting people bought in right people don't read capital um, as like 
extremely comfortable people and then go, oh my God, I really am, you know, at odds with my boss, right? Um, it's it's the oppressed masses that read it. People don't read, uh, you know, uh, State and Revolution and then go, oh yeah, you know, the cops are, are still a, a military occupying us um, without, you know, having some conflict with, with cops because of, of their own oppression um, in day-to-day life, right? Um, people don't read uh, the Red New Deal and then go, oh yeah, you know, the, the Green New Deal is, is hollow and set up by representatives that undercut us unless they're seeing those, those hollow representatives undercut them for money on, on several other issues, right? Because they belong to the unserved people and, and the oppressed masses. Um, so, you know, um, the fact of the matter is, is, is this is something that, that lights people up. You know, uh, this is something me and Nathan talked about way back, uh, with, um, uh, oh goodness, which, which one of his books did we read? Did we do blood in my eye? I think we did blood in my eye, um, by George Jackson, um, where, you know, we were talking about like, it's, it's people's own oppression that, that, that lights up with it. Right. But, once you do that, you, you win and you show them that this is the real answer to the solution with victories, right? Not with losses, uh, with gains. It's, it's in those battles that, that people learn, you know, how to fight, how to win, what can be gained, um, you know, how, how, who is on their side, what the cohesive direction is. And that's learned with victory. Um, that's, that's, and it's not like instant victory. It doesn't have to be overwhelming or perfect, right? It doesn't have to be exactly what you set out to do. And, and there's no losing, you know, it's not like what, oh, you, you went out and you did one black lives matter protest and police brutality wasn't fully resolved or something. Right. But when people see gains, when people see power collected together, when people see attitudes change, that's when they get on board. Um, and that's what that's really saying, right. Is, is like, you're going to have to to go into control and and start changing the way things work, but people are going to look to you because you've been winning with them. You've, you've been part of them. You've taken this revolutionary fervor and you've gained wins with it. And so they're like, this is the path I want to follow. I think it's important too, because he's also following up his, his uh, essentially beginning ramble where he's saying that, you know, you can't just create an energy that isn't already there. Mm-hmm we didn't put anything into your mind. We just helped you find what you were already thinking and gave you the structure to it. But then he's also saying here that, you know, people are, you're giving people structure, but people are still going to be looking to the party for guidance. Yeah. It's a very dialectical relationship that he's describing. And rather and that's than some, some kind of anarchic spontaneity thing of, of, there's well, no, we don't really need a Vanguard party kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to say, this is something that Lenin talked about, the Vanguard party. This is something uh, in Stalin's work about about the Vanguard party. Uh, we've talked about the mass line from Mao. Like, this is uh, something that, that people find very obviously true in revolution is the dialectic relationship between a Vanguard and the masses. If you're not from the masses, you're not a Vanguard. If you're just you know, expecting no vanguard in the masses to fix it. Well, they're, they're, it's too disorganized. It's too messy. Right. Um, and even if the people as a whole are brilliant and revolutionary and individually, they also are too, they're not organized with that power. So all of a sudden as a whole, all that, that dissipates. Right. Um, so yeah, we, that, that dialectic relationship just shows its head again and again and again. And like I've mentioned before, you know, Gramsci really did 
win. Uh, he just didn't get to see the full yeah. victory, and then it was undermined uh, by Gladio shit, right? Um, but but the fact of the matter is, in any of these revolutionary victors and, and philosophers uh, from the socialist movement, they, they see the same thing. Something that I, I still believe um, that I would be interested in seeing your reaction when we get to it, especially when we get to the kind of cultural stuff, is that his idea of, of uh, you know, the Vanguard Party, we see kind of him lean more towards Mao's idea of mass line and also cultural revolution and away from the more, you know, Lenin, Stalin, Bolshevik style Vanguard Party. Um, if only, and I, I save for the listeners here, save your, your, I, I can already imagine you're casting some judgments already. Um, save that for when we get to the actual sections on, on culture and everything, just because he's much more interested in the idea. And this is the guy who's also seeing Soviet bureaucratization from the outside. He's not seeing it happen from within and is also not really taking part in the struggles. We're also going to read a letter he wrote to Stalin uh, and Trotsky when he was essentially like, you know, you know, we got Hitler going on. Maybe we should kind of cool off a little bit. Uh, <laughs> um, but like, he's kind of seeing what's going on in the Soviet union going on from the outside. And then his kind of all of his stuff on culture, I think is m- much more flexible in a way that I it leans more towards Mao and is a little less prone to the bureaucratization we saw with the USSR. I think that'll be, that will be interesting. Um, I'm going to go and take over a reading here. Okay. So you will also have the job of ensuring that the rules of work fixed by the trade federations and accepted in agreement in the agreements are respected in the workshops. For in this area, too, the slightest departure from the established principles can constitute a grave threat to the worker's rights and a person. And you will be his inflexible and tenacious defenders and guardians. And since you yourselves will be living continuously on the job in the midst of the workers, you will be in a position to know what modifications should be made in the rules from time to time. As a result of technological progress or the improved consciousness and capacity of the workers themselves. In this way, a shop floor way of life will be established. I guess I was supposed to emphasize that based on the italics. A shop floor way of life will be established. That probably sounds better. Um, Initial germ of a true and effective labor legislation. Laws which the producers will enact and lay down for themselves. We feel sure that the importance of all this does not escape you and that this is equally clear to all the workers who have promptly and enthusiastically grasped the value and significance of the task you have set yourselves. The era of the active intervention of the labor forces themselves in the fields of technique and discipline has begun. In the technical field, you can, on one hand, do an extremely useful job of collecting precious data and factual material for both the trade federations and the central directive bodies in the new factory organizations. In addition, you will see that see to it 
that the shop floor workers acquire more and more skill, and that the petty feelings of craft jealousy that still divide them are banished forever. In this way, you will prepare them for the day when they are no longer working for the boss, but for themselves, and will have to be united in solidarity if strength of great brutal. In, if the strength of the great proletarian army, whose first units they represent, is to be enhanced, why could you not set up inside the factory appropriate instruction departments, real vocational schools, in which every worker rousing himself from the fatigue that brutalizes that brutalizes may open his mind to the knowledge of the process of production, so to better himself? Um, so this is really going in, and I think we talked about this earlier. Like Gramsci is really big on these trade schools um and so this kind of becomes his version of like educate all workers essentially that that's what i'm understanding so far is that correct prez yeah but he's also a little anti-trade school because he thinks they're too focused on just teaching you a trade yeah He's not necessarily against people like going to school to learn how to do construction without mm-hmm. getting yourself killed. Yeah. But he would also, he also wants you to like, you know, learn how to read and know who Dante is. Um, while also learning how to do construction without getting yourself killed. That, he, he has that kind of humanistic yeah. education still, even if he wants some kind of practical education. Okay. Certainly, if all this is to be accomplished, then discipline will be needed. But the discipline you will require from the working masses will be quite different from the kind imposed and demanded by the boss. Who derived his strength from the property rights that gave him a position of privilege? You will derive your strength from another right, the right of labor. This has for centuries been an instrument in the hands of its exploiters, but today it is ready to redeem itself and govern itself on its own. Your power, as opposed to that of the bosses and their officials, represents not the forces of the past, but the free forces of the future, which wait at their hour and are preparing for it in the knowledge that it will be the hour of redemption from all slavery." And so the central organs that will be created for every group of workshops, every group of factories, every city and every region, right up to the Supreme National Workers' Council, will pursue and broaden and intensify the job of controlling and preparing and organizing the whole class for the tasks of conquest and government. We will realize that the road will not be short or easy. Many difficulties will arise and be placed in your path. To overcome, then, you'll have to draw on a great ability. Perhaps at times you'll have to appeal to the strength of the organized working class. You will always have to be inspired and stimulated to action by supreme faith in our cause. But what is most important, comrades, is that under your guidance, under the guidance of those who will follow your lead, the workers should acquire and deep a deep certainty that now, secure in their goal, they are marching on the great road to the future. Lardi Nuovo, 13 September, 1919. Um, so that's, that's the end of section three. And you're definitely getting the sense. I, I, there's an interesting poll there too, where, you know, he talks about being prepared for governing, right? Um, because it's, it's like another trade, you know, there's, there's knowing your way around it. Even if you, even if you can handle it, like your first day on a job, someone's got to show you where things are, what the process is in that place, why it's that process, you know, 
uh, what the equipment you're working with is, that kind of thing. And governing kind of to some degree has the same thing, but obviously the old fogies that have been doing it, they, they're not interested in worker power. So if you're going to have true worker power, everyone needs to be able to be that kind of elected official and representative. And so they need to be prepared instead of having a small class of, of doing it. So I think that's a very interesting idea is, is educating people in administration. Um, if, and I, I, I may be misreading that, but that's an a interesting idea regardless. And I believe I read that correctly. Oh yeah. Cause also like if you're, uh, you know, like the, the shop floor foreman or the local union head, and you don't know how to be an administrator, there's going to be a problem. <laughs> exactly. And, and so, you know, I'm just regardless of, of, of the, the, the socialist revolution, and, and we're never regardless of that here, but regardless of that, just to, to be a union head, you, you need to be able to handle administration. And of course, know about the jobs that you're, uh, that people that you're representing are doing too. Um, and so those are something that, that you need to be up to speed on. And so the idea of being up to speed on administration is very, very important. And if all of the governing powers in the working councils, it's all the more important and should go to all of the workers. That's a pathway to power, right? That that's, it's just like learning to read when people are literate is a pathway to more power. And that's, that's where, you know, literacy rates, going up under socialist governments is such a big goal so many times, right? And literacy rates going up under reconstruction was such a big goal um, coming out of, of slavery in the United States. Um, you know, the same thing, right? Learning to administer is is going to help secure that power. Oh, that's the next phase in that. Um, and with that, we can move on to section four, unions and councils. Uh, and that does mean we will probably be ending in the middle of a section, but we're going to dig in anyway. Um, <clears throat> the trade union is not a predetermined phenomenon. It becomes a determinate institution, i.e. it takes on a definite historical form to the extent that the strength and will of the workers who are its members impress a policy and purpose and aim that define it. Objectively, the trade union is the form which labor as a commodity is bound to assume in a capitalist system when it organizes itself in order to control the market. This form consists of an office staffed by functionaries, organizational technicians when they can be called technicians, no shade there, Gramsci, uh, specialists when they can be called specialists, it is the shade that doesn't end, um, in the art of concentrating and guiding the workers' forces in such a way as to establish a favorable balance between the working class and the power of capital. The development of trade union organization is characterized by two facts. One is that the union embraces an ever-increasing number of workers. Two is that the union concentrates and generalizes its scope until the movement's power and discipline is focused in a central office. This office becomes divorced from the masses it has regimented and removes itself from the eddies and currents of fickle whims and foolish ambitions that are expected in the excitable broad masses. Um, I'm guessing eddies is just like everyday concerns and stuff. I'm not familiar with that term. Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay. 
Um, the union thus acquires the ability to negotiate agreements and take on responsibilities. And this way, it obliges the employer to contact a certain legality in his dealings with the workers, a legality that is conditional on his faith in the union's solvency and its capacity to secure respect for contracted obligations from the working masses. The emergence of an industrial legality is a great victory for the working class, but it is not the ultimate and definitive victory. Industrial legality has improved the working class's standard of living, but it is no more than a compromise, a compromise which had to be made and must be supported until the balance of forces favors the working class. So again, you know, we're not, we're not here to like be anti-union or anti-working rights. We, you win, but that's not, that's not the final revolution. And we've said that many times, especially with regard to like syndicalism and stuff like that. Um, if the trade union officials regard industrial legality as a necessary, but not a permanently necessary compromise, they deploy all means at the union's disposal to improve the balance of forces in favor of the working class. If they carry out all of the spiritual material predatory preparatory work that will be needed if the working class is to launch any particular movement, a victorious offensive against capital and subject to its law, then the trade union is a tool of revolution and union discipline even when used to make the workers respect industrial legality, is a revolutionary discipline. The relations which should prevail between the trade unions and factory councils need to be judged in the light of the following question. What is the nature and value of industrial legality? The council is the negation of industrial legality. It strives at all times to destroy it to lead the working class on the conquest of industrial power and make it the source of industrial power. The union represents legality and must aim to make its members respect that legality. The trade union is answerable to the industrialists, but only so far as it is answerable to its own members. It guarantees to the worker and his family a continuous supply of work and wages, i.e. food and a roof over their heads. By virtue of its revolutionary spontaneity, the factory council tends to spark off the class war at any moment. While the trade union, by virtue of its own bureaucratic form, I, I don't know why I added the word own, but it works, tends to prevent class war from, the ever break, from ever breaking out. The relations between the two institutions should be such that capricious impulse on part of the councils could not result in a setback or defeat for the working class. In other words, the council should accept and assimilate the discipline of the union. They should also be such that the revolutionary character of the council exercises an influence over the trade union and functions as a regent dissolving the union's bureaucracy and bureaucratism. Bureaucratism. <laughs> That's an interesting word. Um, the council strives at all times to break with the industrial legality. The council consists of the exploited and tyrannized masses who are obliged to perform servile labor. As such, it strives to universalize every rebellion and give a resolutive scope and value to each of his acts of power. The union as an organization that is jointly responsible for legality strives to universalize and perpetuate its legality. The relations between the union and the council should create the conditions which break with legality. The working class offensive occurs at the most opportune moment for the working class when it possesses that minimum of preparation that is deemed indispensable to lasting victory. Um, again, really like how, how we're meeting out where the union power starts and ends and how to diagnose its importance, right? 
if you are at a stage of revolution where industrial legality is the most revolutionary step you can take, unions are revolutionary. If you are past that state, then they can be counter-revolutionary because they rest on that legality. Is is kind of my summation of those last two paragraphs, and that works perfectly with um, with how we understand unions today. We should also see that with uh, with rights too. <laughs> rights are kind of a compromise to keep the masses from from you know rising up, uh, and they're a victory of the masses. And if you lack those rights, and those rights secure life and and a better standard of living for the masses, then they're important. But also like upholding the institutions that uh, are enforcing those rights. If they're enforcing, if they're, if they're undercutting rights, like where, where does the line start and end with that? And, and we have to understand that when we see institutions too. So you can kind of expand on that a little bit as well. It's, it's basically just a strong thought instrument in what value does stuff have, right? You don't take answers for granted. You, ask the questions and find the answers. Do you have anything more before I move on, Prez? No. Okay, great. We might finish this section. We'll see. The relations between unions and councils cannot be stabilized by any other device than the following. The majority or a substantial number of the electors to the council should be organized in unions. Any attempt to link the two institutions in a relation or of hierarchical dependence can only lead to the destruction of both. If the concept, it can't mix oil and water. Uh, if the concept that sees the councils merely as an instrument in the trade union struggle takes material form in a bureaucratic discipline and a hierarchical structure in which the union has direct control over the council, then the council is sterilized as a force for revolutionary expansion, as a form of the actual development of the proletarian revolution, tending spontaneously to create new modes of production and labor, new modes of discipline, and, in the end, a communist society." Since the rise of the council is a function of the position that the working class has achieved in the sphere of production and historical necessity for the working class, any attempt to subordinate it hierarchically uh, to the union would sooner or later result in a clash between the two institutions. The council's strength consists of the fact that it is in close contact, indeed identified, with the consciousness of the working masses who are seeking their autonomous emancipation and wish to put it on record that their freedom of initiative in the creation of history, put on record their freedom of initiative in the creation of history. The masses as a whole participate in the activity of the council and gain a measure of self-respect in the process. Only a very restricted number of members participate in the activity of the trade union. Its real strength lies in this fact but the fact is also a weakness that cannot be put to the test without running very grave risks. If moreover unions were to lean directly on the councils, not to dominate them, but to become their higher form, then they would reflect the council's own tendency to break at all times with industrial legality and unleash the final phase of the class war. The union would lose its capacity to negotiate agreements and would lose its role as an agent to regulate and discipline the impulsive forces of the working class. If its members established a revolutionary discipline in the union, a discipline which the masses see as being necessary for the triumph of the workers' revolution and not a slavery to capital, this discipline will undoubtedly be accepted and made its own in the council. It will become a natural aspect of the council's activity. 
if the Union headquarters becomes a center for revolutionary preparation and appears as such to the masses by virtue of the campaigns it succeeds in launching, the men who compose it and the propaganda it issues, then its centralized and absolutist character will be seen by the masses as a major revolutionary strength, as one more and very important condition for the success of the struggle uh, to which they are committed all the way. In Italian conditions, the trade union official sees industrial legality as a permanent state of affairs. Too often he defends it from the same perspective as the proprietor. He sees only chaos and willfulness in everything that happens amongst the working masses. He does not universalize the, union, the workers' act of rebellion against capitalist discipline as rebellion. He perceives only the physical act, which might be in and of itself trivial, or which might in and of itself be trivial. Thus, the story of the porter's raincoat has been as widely disseminated as has been interpreted by stupid journalists in the same way the myth of the socialization of women in Russia. Uh, what's the porter's trench coat? Is this something I know and I'm not thinking of, or is this something specifically from that time? I don't know. I'm trying to look. <laughs> well, that's a good sign that it's not something I, we should know and I'm not thinking of, so that's good. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know what the Porter's trench coat is. So, so of course, the story we all know and love, the Porter's trench coat. Um, in these conditions, the trade union discipline can be nothing other than a service rendered to capital. In these conditions, any judgment or any attempt to subordinate the councils to the trade unions can only be judged as reactionary. The communists would like the revolutionary act to be, as far as possible, a conscience and responsible act. Hence, they would like to see the choice of the moment in which, the in which to launch the working class offensive, to the extent that such a moment can be chosen, resting in the hands of the most conscious and responsible section of the working class, the section organized in the Socialist Party and playing the most active part in the life of the organization. For this reason, the communists could not possibly want the union to lose any of its disciplinary energy and systemic centralization, or systematic centralization. By forming themselves into permanently organized groups within the trade unions and factories, the communists need to import into these bodies the ideas, theses, and tactics of the Third International. They need to exert an influence over the union discipline and determine its aims. They need to influence the decisions of the factory councils and transform the rebellious impulses sparked off by conditions the capitalist has created for the working class into revolutionary consciousness and creativity since they bear the heaviest historical responsibility. The communists in the party have the greatest interest in evoking, through their ceaseless activity, relations of interpretation and natural interdependence between the various working-class institutions. It is these relations that leave in discipline, leaven discipline, an organization with revolutionary spirit. I guess leaven like raves, like the opposite of unleaven. Um, anyway, I unsigned Lord Dean Nuovo, 12 June, 1920. And that is where we'll end today. We will start next time on red Sunday. Um, in the meantime, uh, do you have anything else to add about our reading today? Prez before we move on to outros. Uh, no, 
Just okay. be just be prepared for Gramsci and Mao are very similar. This is <laughs> going to be a line I'm going to be using as we get deeper in. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there, there's also, and, and, you know, we talked about it, most people that call themselves Maoists. Now, there are still groups that call themselves Maoists, and it's more like what a lot of people would call uh, Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought. Um, but there are some that are they're Maoists that are, are more like, you know, Gonzalo style, right? Like everyone is, is um, uh, you know, uh, revisionist and, and stuff. But for a lot, for the most part, there's a lot of like, yeah, you know, there's revision in this revolution, but that's, that's also, you know, uh, the revolution that exists there. And, and it's like, it's, it's, it's Marxism and Leninism under like emphasizing Mao's contribution. And that just doesn't tend to go by Mao's as much now, but I think that's, I think that's a, a discipline that, that, uh, um, that I, a lot of people understand, I think. And I think it, it maybe almost gets a bad rap from, from the, the Gonzalo branch of Maoism, you know? Yeah. I mean, Western Maoists are a special breed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. We're, we're not talking about third world Maoists. This is not like the Maoists in the Philippines when we're saying, you know, yeah. Gonzalo style Maoist. Um, so, um, but anyway, uh, with that, this has been Mark's Madness Pod, part of Chunkaluta Network. We read books. Um, there's a number of different ways to get a hold of us. Uh, you can get a hold of us on uh, Twitter or X or whatever it is uh, at Chunkaluta Org. What's ahead? What? Oh, I thought you said something. I'm sorry. No. Okay, it might have just been a hiss on my computer or something like that from the microphone. Um, anyway, uh, it's at Chunkaluta Org. Um, or at Mark's Madness Pod. Uh, you can also get a hold of us through email. Uh, I believe that's still chunkalucha1973 at gmail.com and then Mark's Madness Pod at gmail.com. Um, you can also get us on Discord. Uh, the Mark's Madness Discord is public. Um, and then, of course, there's a Chunkalucha Discord uh, that you could even get on by invite. Um, I believe some of that goes on with the Patreon, but also, you know, for organizational reasons, people get invited. Um, and you can get a hold of us there. Um, please email us if you have any questions, corrections, anything like that. Um, in the meantime, I think the biggest thing right now is there's a drive, um, and Shigmani Two is is organizing it. Um, it's it's a drive that's been going on uh, to get uh, housing on on or to get some. some I'm not housing some some construction stuff for for firewood and, and things like that distribution, uh, on Pine Ridge reservation. Uh, and some of the funds even recently had to be, um, redirected, uh, the, the traditional headsman of, of the Ashanti Shakoween basically made this decision and, and it was to save someone's life. Um, so all the more reason that we need funds raised. Um, so that fundraiser right now, um, you know, we, we have a GoFundMe link in the show notes. Uh, you can also, donate uh venmo it's at uh zicato or it's you know cash app at zicato's tin can um you can also uh do patreon i believe it's also zicato tin can still on patreon i don't think shigamani 2's changed that yet um i could be wrong we'll confirm and put that in the show notes as well um anything else you've got prez uh, no. Order no. the COVID tests if you haven't already. You get some for free now. 
Oh, good. That's uh, that's back again. That's good. I've still got my. I, I I've got to check the expiration on mine now. Yeah, they expire. Um, so if you mm-hmm. haven't used them, double check. Yeah. Um, but you get four free per household, which is mm-hmm. stupid. And it should be like four free per person, but you know whatever. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, and and it should just be free based on yeah. need. But it was, uh, it, there shouldn't be IP protecting the yeah. the vaccines. <laughs> People should be masked. There's a lot of shoulds here. Um, but if you to go, go the the Biden administration is giving like a little table scrap. So go get it. Yeah, and that that also is should be a telltale sign that COVID rates are are going up to the point that they can't like. It's a tough position, you know, because people really want to lean into institutions and, and everyday people don't want to feel like they fail, right? This is this is one of the things that actually upholds a lot of bigotry, right? People be raised by by someone who's a bigot or be friends with someone who's a bigot or do something bigoted and not realize it. And then you correct them. And a lot of people get pearl clutchy and defensive because now all of a sudden they've got to come to grips with, I did something wrong or this person I, I thought highly of might be bad. You see this, of course, with parasocial relationships with celebrities as well. You, you're also going to get this a little bit and you, you see this with like, you know, capitalist realism and, and uh, so much as that is a useful concept uh, and, and, you know, nationalism uh, in reactionary na- nations like the settler colony that is the United States. Um, but you also see this with with COVID, right? Um, all these institutions that we're supposed to be trusting now now failed us, you know, and so if you're right wing then you have to come to terms that capitalism failed and didn't solve COVID better and, and made things worse and, and, and grummied everything up. And if you're left wing, um, you have to come to the fact that, that even if the, you know, you, you fully believe the government institutions will fail you. There's some amount of left wing organizations you think highly of that have come lax on unmasking and, and not put people first. And that's, that's difficult to come to grips with. Um, and then people also, they feel socially awkward and don't want to be left out. And then they pull their mask down. They have to put grips, come to grips with that. They wanted to wear one and they let themselves not. And now it's still around and no one wants to look in the mirror, right? Because we're all trained in the West to be saints, to be the next great martyr. This is one of the things we're like, oh, you can't defend North Korea. You know, then that, that's going to be, you know, if, if, if you go along with it, it's what everybody's doing. It's understandable. And if you don't go along with it and you're wrong, you stuck your neck out for a bad one, you know? And so people are like afraid to, to change their stance on that. And that, that goes into COVID as well. And it helps it perpetuate. So you should take this as a big telltale sign the whole time we figured out there's certain air purifiers and ionization that have made big differences and just generally switching out air filters and having good uh, filtration has been a big help in places, of course, fall behind on that, but also not masking, um, you know, not holding events outside, when you can, things like that. And and everybody's kind of rolled back or failed or celebrated COVID being over and it's not. And if it's got to be recognized again through all of that, um, that tells you it's bad. And the entire time the government's been, you know, making sure maybe they don't wear masks where they go, but they bring these like ionized air purifiers that aren't even that expensive, right? And they could put in all the schools. Uh, I don't know if it's ionized is the right word, but some kind of it's. There's certain air purifiers that do it. They, um, there's certain grades of HEPA filter that can filter out the COVID virus that they just mm-hmm. won't put in the budget. Yeah, they could. Yeah, I mean, we could literally go back to indoors everywhere with dollars and yeah. outfit every school in the country mm-hmm. with the HEPA filter, and instead filter out. 
Instead, we're just sending kids in to get sick. And for people who don't understand, like COVID, there's a lot of airborne illnesses and and usually they'll carry on in like water droplets in the air. Some are are truly airborne, right? But most could carry on with water droplets. And so what these filtrations do is they can grab those droplets as they run through the filtration system before there's enough coming out of someone's mouth, essentially, or nose or whatever to to spread the the disease um and so that's why it's so important um for that but but you know even with that obviously masks obviously you know vaccines and boosters can help most people have not been keeping up on boosters because there's not been good messaging around that um the messaging is so bad it's so bad it's it's, it's so gotten bad. to the, it's gotten to the point where people with normal precautions with normal diseases um that, that have been endemic for a long time, like flu and stuff are almost scaled back because people are, yeah. are embarrassed to recognize disease. And this was already in a country where you would go to work sick and take some pride in it because we've got this weird capitalist servile attitude ingrained. In, well, in also the most insane thing to me with the messaging, cause uh, you know, I, I'm, I won't give away the thing that I study cause that would, there's only so many people who study my thing and then move <laughs> to Europe. Sure. <laughs> but like i i'm in public health and like no time in modern history do they ever say like the base vaccine remember that Mm -hmm. two round shot yep yep no time have they ever said like this is good for the other variants they've been saying that for covid yeah that's right that people don't no, like everyone's been acting like you get the the original two shots and you're set. Yeah. And you're set. Like imagine telling someone like, Oh, I got my flu shot five years ago, so I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. No. And, and, and part of that is, you know, the flu is endemic and they're, they're out there saying to try to convince you that it's okay, that COVID's endemic and people hear endemic and they think, you know, um, like, oh, something's endemic and then I don't have to care about it when really endemic just means like here to stay. It does not mean it's any less harmful, any less contagious. It just means it's here to stay and they're yeah. declaring it endemic, which to me, and that's like, giving up. You know, diseases happen, stuff yeah. happens. I'm not yeah. mad per se about the existence of COVID itself. It's the fact that no. we have all of this technology. Mm-hmm. We know how this spreads we know exactly how to prevent the spread, mm-hmm. but we, we still chose to just hit the gas mm-hmm. without doing any other precautions. That's the problem. It's not that. Well, and we had, we had, party, we had one party dedicated to denying it, worrying about getting masks off and blaming China and the other party dedicated to, you know, get everybody one round of vaccines and then shove kids back in school. Yeah, saying like, yeah, it exists, and then going right back to doing what we were doing. Yeah, yeah, and and it's very hard for people to to come to grips with like those are the institutions I have to trust. Where do I start? And that's scary. And that maybe for like people that listen to podcasts all the time, but people around you who who don't, right? Like the everyday person. Um, well, because then also, how do you like explain to someone who doesn't trust? these mm-hmm. institutions for those reasons to also trust these institutions that yeah 
and and now you have to tell people that they they shouldn't be trusted because they shouldn't but that the evidence they present should be trusted uh, because it should and that's a very confusing message for people because people are very absolutist and they're not very well educated on something that i don't want to say everybody's not educated work class is more educated you think but they've They've been propagandized to one direction or another with regards to these institutions and ideology can be very overriding with knowledge. I mean, not even that. If you spend your whole time just like seeing this revolving door between the FDA and Pfizer and all of this shit and then seeing like, oh, the government's doing all of this other stuff Mm -hmm. and then my grandmother just died. Mm hmm. Because they opened up the nursing homes when they shouldn't have. Yeah. And now they're going back on television telling me that I have to go do this thing to stop the spread of COVID. Yeah. My, Why my am uncle, I going to trust them? My uncle, we've been fighting nursing home abuse already for months. And then he went into two weeks of, of, um, of COVID uh, uh, quarantine. Jesus. Right. And then he came out of that quarantine. Right. But during the quarantine, they were still open for visits. They just had one quarantined wing. And it's like, how, how the fuck do you think this works that you could just right. shut off one wing of, of a nursing home? So, so like, yeah. that's not even how quarantine works. No, that's not COVID. a quarantine. They, change, they, they literally changed the policies of quarantine because so many people have COVID now. Yeah. And they just didn't, they don't want society to be inconvenienced with reality. Right. And, and that's, that's capitalism to a T. You don't want the economy to be inconvenienced with reality. And when it is, you damn well better come down on those workers. Um, so with that, <laughs> that is how we're ending today. Uh, once again, it's been Mark's Madness Pod, part of Chunkaluta. We read books. <laughs> My name is David. I'm Perez. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>